Welcome to the Be Brave podcast, where ordinary, badass, brave women speak their stories of courage and strength. We hope that by hearing the struggles and successes of women just like you, it will help you be brave. Please note that the Be Brave podcast does cover adult topics that include overcoming adversity in areas of sexual abuse, addiction, depression, and other difficult experiences. So today we have Catherine with us, who's going to be discussing her story of how she left her marriage of 17 years after the relationship became toxic and damaging to her family. A little bit about Catherine, a mother of three awesome children. Catherine picked herself up by her bootstraps after a divorce, found her way back into the workforce, and built a career for the second time. Now, 11 years post-divorce, she finds herself reaping the rewards of building a better life. Married to Jim, who she met almost accidentally, and stepmother to his three adult kids, and enjoying a career in the security industry where she supports technology companies who help make our world a safer place. In her spare time, she lures family and friends together by making craft cocktails and abundant charcuterie boards. And I want to say, Catherine was making awesome charcuterie boards before it was a thing. (laughs) Welcome, Catherine. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be with you. One more little anecdote. When we were planning our podcast, Patty and I were having a meeting and we were, we had a list of people we wanted to interview. And Catherine was the first one that got back to me by text to do some scheduling. And she said to me in her text, Kara, I'm sure there is somebody else more equipped or who has a better story than I do. And I just want to read to you, Catherine, what I found on Facebook the other day. It's a quote and it's not attributed to anybody, but it says, one day you will tell your story of how you overcome what you're going through now and it will become part of someone else's survival guide. Oh, so again, we appreciate you being here. So true. That is so true. We're so excited to have you with us and your story today is going to help someone else through the similar situation that you had and hopefully allow them to be brave, to overcome their fears that you were probably very similar to the fears that you had when you were trying to overcome your toxic relationship and save your family from what was going on. I know that it it sometimes sounds so simple to say, well, just leave the relationship or just move on. But that's not easy to do, especially when you're in a 17-year relationship And your kids are, you know, at the middle of that. So I'm super excited to have you with us. And I'm really excited to learn more about you. And I know that you are a badass, brave woman. So tell us your story. Sure. Well, thank you. And I think probably when Kara invited me to join, it was really because I came to a point in my life where there was a shift that I still see as like this defining moment took longer than a moment, but in the scheme of my life, it was a defining moment where something had to change. I was going to have to be the change agent. I went from this idyllic, you know, the outside, it was an idyllic, beautiful life. And then to a point where I realized it was not idyllic, it was not beautiful. And then, you know, a point of action and muddling your way through and then getting to the other side. Boy, is that rewarding. But you know what you were saying about a survival guide? Boy, did I have people who wrote chapters for me to read, you know, from experience of their own or or friends that they had seen or family they'd seen. And that made all the difference. So how cool that I get to share some of this too for others who may be coming upon change of any kind. Yeah, that's awesome that you get to give back now once you've been through it and you can see where you were and how far you came. 
Right. I think no matter what the impetus is for that change, when you have a change in your life, you can relate to people who are also having change, no matter what's causing it, you know, health, death, any kind of tragedy or education or anything like that. A shift requires a lot of effort and endurance and bravery. Yeah. Catherine, I I think it's so normal for us to have this kind of life that we think we're supposed to be living or that we're supposed to have. And you said you're, you know, from the outside looking in, everything in your life was idyllic, right? Everything was like everybody would kind of want it. But behind your front door of your home was different. Do you mind going into a little bit of what both sides of that is, like the outside of your door at home, what that might look like. And then once you walked through the door, what that was like for us to understand? Yeah. Well, from the outside, really, there could not have been a better life. And I did enjoy a lot of that. It was true. You know, three awesome kids, great health, amazing extended family. And then on the more superficial side, there was, you know, beautiful home, successful husband. I was fortunate to be able to stay home and raise my kids and be active in their lives and and have some philanthropic activities as well. I mean, the sun was always shining, (laughs) but then you open that door and like any family, you know, you, you're, there are fissures, I guess. So ours had to do with substance abuse, mental illness, you know, lots of factors that can absolutely destroy and and by their nature, those things often prevent healthy relationships. Yeah. So we suffered from that. And part of what I, I guess there was there was a point. I remember sitting in my suburban, driving my kids to one thing or another. And I had three in the car, and there was a mom. I was at a red light, and there was a mom crossing the sidewalk. And she had her two little kids, one in each hand. And they were not skipping across the sidewalk, but, you know, they were having a great time. And I remember looking at her thinking, she looks so happy. And I realized then, oh, you're not. (laughs) And why is that? And I was kind of raised, you know, stiff upper lip, get through things. People don't want to hear your problems. And, you know, from the outside looking in, what on earth did I have to complain about? So it was that moment when I thought, wait a minute, why aren't you happy? You've got everything in the world. And so what's lacking? And then once you start opening your own eyes to what's inside of you and your environment, and you you have the self-awareness, you can start to diagnose. Yeah. Well, so is that the exact day that turned your life around or the exact moment? Or is there another moment for you that you can remember a time when you said, I've had enough, like this is my defining moment. Was that it when you saw those two kids with their mom skipping across the street and you started to introspect in your own happiness? Or was there a different defining moment that made you say, I've had enough and I have to be happy. I have to be me. I think the crosswalk, what an image that is too, right? On a crosswalk. (laughs) Um, It's a perfect, it's perfect. (laughs) Um, The crosswalk was what opened my eyes so that when the defining moment came, I was paying attention. And so there was a time when I guess, you know, we were in the middle of an episode where drinking was ruining a family night. And it became obvious to me that it was now dangerous, you know, and, and to be clear, I never was in a position, thankfully, where I was at risk directly of violence or anything like that, but certainly somebody who shouldn't have been driving or somebody who was impaired and taking care of my children, you know, yes, there was risk that way. But when I started to realize, okay, (laughs) something could go wrong here. This is dangerous. That was a moment in our home where I just thought, okay, I'm done now. This is, this is it. We've got, and and done at that point meant we need to figure out how we move forward. And (laughs) that was not so successful. There was a lot of therapy that went into that, but we were like serial marriage counsel 
counseling check writers <laughs> because <laughs> every time we started therapy, you know, he was very convinced we were going down the wrong road and we're not focused on the real problem. And so we'd have to try somebody else. And, you know, most people have the same answer. So then oddly enough, we, so we separated and that was, you know, kind of step one. When you were in therapy together, were you focused on the drinking or was it a bunch of things? It was, was he Mm. admitting that drinking was part of the issue? Uh, well, we were, I would go in with, we have this relationship problem and then, you know, trying to be unbiased. What's the point in going in if you're just finger pointing right away and then knowing anybody who's any good at this is going to uncover the problem and it didn't take long. And also to be clear, you know, we were both in this relationship. So I was as unhealthy by nature of living with a substance abuse problem as the other party. So it took a lot for me to get myself healthy enough so that I had confidence in my decisions and I, and in my actions and in my ability to mother. And so, you know, I guess you have to go into counseling holistically and you couldn't really separate the two because there was this central problem that stemmed from, you know, an addiction and it it poisoned the whole family. Catherine, can I interrupt and ask a question? Yes. Your um, incident that you were telling us about, the timing between that and going into therapy. And I just, and I just find it really interesting that that was the first day that you noticed, you really just put a finger on the fact that you're not happy, but you're kind of denying yourself. It sounded like you're denying yourself that feeling because look at me, why I have no right to be unhappy. And I think that is something key for a lot of people, women, probably, especially, but just, but just key. And I'm just wondering how long before you actually said something out loud to anyone or your husband to say, we need to fix this together? Uh, So there had probably been conversations before that about, hey, do you think maybe this is starting to be something you're depending on? And do you want to get some help for this or go to some meetings? Really light, you know, that had gone back. That was probably five years before that. But I would say the crosswalk incident was just a seed and it took a long time before I started seeing the entire picture mm. and, and losing patience. I don't want to say patience, but recognizing that it was truly damaging. It was damaging me and it would be damaging for my children. Yeah. It wasn't the picture it, it wasn't the environment that was going to be healthy for them. Yep. But it was a while before that turned into the next step. It was a journey, <laughs> as I say. So it was counseling the next step? Mm-mm. Actually, no. So then it was, I'm not happy. <laughs> so I better go get some help. And I went and, oh, I had this amazing doctor who, and he helped me see that, you know, I was in this depression because I said to him, I have the perfect life. And yeah, my marriage is awesome. And my kids are awesome. And I've got this just perfect dream that anybody would want. And yet I'm not happy. So, you know, you're depressed, right? So he treated me for several years. And then I walked into his office one day and I said, so guess what? (laughs) This marriage I've been telling you about is horrible. And Aww. it is something that I have to address. And he, I remember him just looking at me like, well, what have we been doing here? So it was an awakening. And then that that's probably when I started to look at, okay, I need to take steps here. This isn't me. Although I was definitely depressed, but it, it wasn't necessarily a clinical thing. It was a circumstantial thing. So that was another step. Who were you telling about this in the meantime? Anybody? No, no. And so his drinking was very clever. He was the highest functioning alcoholic at the time. Nobody would have known uh, that he had a problem. We went out 
for dinner with friends, he'd have a glass of wine. That was it. But then he'd come home and um, have a lot more. It was all hidden. Most of the time, I didn't even know it was happening uh, until it got worse and worse. And I started seeing, you know, the effects. And I look back and I think I was a textbook enabler and in denial, like you read about. And so until I really accepted it, I wasn't talking to anybody about it. And I was really good at putting on this space that matched the outside look of life. And I think, so when I first told my family, I think I told my family first, like my mom and my siblings, and everyone was stunned. Not necessarily, uh, they were stunned with the addiction, not necessarily the um, mismatch of our personalities, but they were stunned with the addiction because I... I never let on. He never was obvious about it. And then when I told my friends, I think it was the same thing. You know, it was like, well, it didn't seem to be a good fit, but who knew about this whole other thing that was going on? And um, it was pretty much universal that people were surprised, but supportive. And that was huge. And that's when I started reading other survival guides because people would come out of the woodwork and say, hey, let me let me help you out here with an experience I had. One of the reasons, I'll say this, one of the reasons I didn't want or didn't think I should or had the right to leave the relationship was other people remained married and in love with addicts. And, you know, I went to a couple Al-Anon meetings and all the people in the room really loved that person. And I felt so guilty that I, I had fallen out of love and I wasn't seeing it through. I wasn't pulling my weight. I wasn't, you know, I was expected to shoulder this. And so that was very difficult. I didn't see many people who had left because of this, because it's settling. People don't talk about this that go, you know, what goes on in their home. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, you kind of said it yourself, you weren't talking about it. And I can only imagine that you know, you said you enabled and you were kind of turning a blind eye, but nobody wants this to be their life. So when this starts happening, it's of course there's denial. It's like, no, this can't be it. Mm-mm, no way. There's no, you know, you just don't want it to be true. But then I love how you said when you started to open up and tell people about it, all of a sudden you've got these people that are willing to share this with you and say, here's my survival guide. Here's my survival, you know, here's right. some help. And I'm happy to you know, listen or, you know, whatever it is, which is comforting. I I did have that. But I think one thing is really important. You can have all the help in the world. And I hope you do. And it does help. But in the end, you go through this alone. Mm -hmm. And at some point, you just have to decide, okay, I'm going in. (laughs) And I'm going to do this. And and for me, the impetus was, I didn't like... uh, there became there was a definite moment when I would not tolerate the way my kids were being treated. And so that was the line right there. And there were all these little lines leading up to it, but okay, when it comes to my kids, that's a deal breaker. And that's when you decide. Uh, and for me, it wasn't a decision. It was just instinct. This will end and change. And So this morning, I thought it was so interesting knowing this call was coming up. Something came up in my Instagram feed. Again, like yours, Carrot, has no one attributed to it. But it says, behind every strong person is a story that gave them no choice. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah. So I I shared that with my husband and he said, oh, I don't know about that because I think you absolutely made a choice. And so, yes, he's right, as usual. (laughs) Um, But I think to me, it didn't seem that there didn't seem to be an option. And so, yes, I made a choice to move forward. But to me, it wasn't a choice. This is how it had to be. But, you know, I guess it was a choice because I'm you're struggling through until that time when you're ready to make the decision. Catherine, I I have to ask you, you're saying such really fascinating things to me because I don't have children. And I do believe that we will tolerate a lot of stuff and we will tolerate being treated in ways where we know it's not how we want to be treated. 
or a good way, the right way, whatever word you want to put in, in it. And what you said was, it was the defining moment was when, it, like, you're a mama bear, and I love mama bears. <laughs> you, you're messing with my kids. You can't mess with my kids. You can mess with me. You could steal my joy. You could put me in harm. You could put me in jeopardy, but you can't mess with my kids. Do you think if you didn't have children that you would have stayed? Oh, that is a great question. I think actually I fell into that classic idea, that thought that I can't leave because of the kids. Right. Yeah. And I've had, uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who have different views on that, but so part of me thinks it would have been uh, easier to leave if I didn't feel a responsibility to give them an intact family. I guess I'll put it that way. And but I I still know my feeling for a long time was I I took a vow and that was not negotiable. And oddly enough, um, at one point I I went to see my pastor. I got to be careful here because he certainly didn't say, oh, yeah, get out of this thing. But Mm -hmm. he listened for a very long time and realized this is not something that is healthy, that is, you know, sacramental, that is what God's plan was for marriage. And it was very, very sick and probably not able to have any improvement just because of the circumstances that were going on. And he said, you know, our, our, our church provides a way out when it's this bad. And so let's start exploring that. And so that kind of gave me license because this vow was really one of the obstacles. I had a lot of imagery going on through my whole divorce. And at that point it was asteroids and I, (laughs) (laughs) this big obstacle and it just broke up. And I was like, okay, now I can do this. And, and I, you know, it didn't make it any less sad, but I, I felt that it wasn't, it it wasn't going to damage my soul, you know? Mm -hmm. And then as far as the kids go, I did have one of our therapists say to me, do you think you can get through this? And I said, oh, I can get through this, but I worry about the kids. And she said, do you think they can get through this? Or do you think you can help them through this? And I said, I can absolutely help them get through this. And she said, then don't worry about them. If you know they have it in them and you have it in you to hold their hand through it, then don't you worry. Don't let that be the reason. Wow. So that, you know, again, the central figure there was the kids. Yeah. And it sounded like, Catherine, when you were, when you went to that Al-Anon meeting and you were sitting there and you, you said that all these people still like loved their spouse and, and you were, again, I think for for more than one time in our, our short conversation here, it sounded like, and I want you to clear this up for me or maybe expand on this, that you were almost blaming yourself. Like, why can't I still be in love with him? Why can't this work? Why can't I make this work? And I think sometimes when we have adversity and we are, let's face it, I I think the woman is the person that keeps the family together. And the woman is the one who nurtures those relationships in a typical relationship. And there's really nothing typical. So I should watch my (laughs) words. You know, were you, were you really like feeling like this was somehow your fault that if you did something different or if you behaved differently or if you loved differently or if you, you know, it, things could have been different. Tell me, you know, when I said blame yourself, we're on video here. I can see you, your head started to nod big. So please expand on that for us because I think many of us blame ourselves for things that are beyond our control. Uh, I think I would just describe it in my case a little differently because I am strong-headed. I will stand up for my thoughts, my ideas. So I had no trouble making it very clear that the situation was not acceptable. So instead of saying, why can't I? And uh, it was more, I should be able to endure this because I said I would. And, And others do and others can. And I'm as strong as anybody. So why can't I? Because I should, you know, it was more the the shoulds until 
I just got to the point where I won't. It wasn't that I can't, I won't. Yeah. I won't right. do this anymore. And that's, you know, the moment of change. That's when, when you happens. realize you have a choice. When mm-hmm. you realize it's not right. Yeah. I can't or I, I should. I right. And it I yeah, that. to me it wasn't even a choice. It was at that point it was almost I didn't even feel myself taking action. It was just this is how it's going. It's mm-hmm. it's going to go this way now. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, you're, I you're I agree with what lady. Jim said, your husband, that it was a choice, but I think we all have that line that once it's crossed, you know, your choice was already made like right. eons ago, or that's your instinct. It's like, okay, done, you know? Yep. Yeah. Somebody said to me, the window was closing for you. It was just a matter of when is it going to be shut and mm-hmm. what's going to close it? And it was the kids. Yeah. That's when, boom, <laughs> that window is shut. Can, so. can you, I'm going to ask you a question and it, it, you might not want to answer it and it's perfectly okay if you don't want to answer it, Catherine. Okay. Can you share with like the darkest, darkest time in your marriage? Like what, were you in the fetal position on the shower floor? I mean, <laughs> and I don't, and I don't, I don't say that lightly because I think that that happens often to us when we're in a toxic relationship. We we get to the depths of rock bottom. And I think that's sometimes what turns us around. But I know, and, and, and again, you don't have to answer that if you don't want to. No, um, I'm actually, I'm thinking about that. The darkest time came when we separated. <laughs> and I remember my brother saying, yeah, divorce is really hard on a marriage. and so you know your separation is kind of the tip of the divorce spear there and so you're flirting with that divorce the end of that so that's when it got dark but there were certainly very dark days before that and I I don't know that I can describe moments but it was a feeling of being completely alone uh being oh the cliched trapped like really without it felt without an option uh, because I hadn't gotten to that point yet and so it was like hard to catch your breath And it was exhausting because you're trying to put up this front, uh, which I tried to put up with him too. You know, why should I drag him into this? You know, I'm the one that's miserable. You mean your husband or your brother? My husband. Okay. You know, like this is my problem. Wow. So the, the dark days, I guess, were, you know, when the drinking was really becoming uh, out of control, the, the mental health issues that a company that the, I think they actually call it the crazies that infect the family uh, because you keep adjusting to this new normal, which becomes sicker and sicker and sicker. And those days are tremendously dark. You don't see light, but it's been dimming. And so you don't really notice and you just operate within that. And so it was really like, oh, when the light went on, that was it. There's the door. We're walking through this now. And, um, and I don't necessarily mean, you know, like the door, don't let it hit you on the way out. I mean, the door to the new, the new stage in all of this, that door. You said he was like, I have, you know, addiction and substance abuse in my family as well. And I understand functioning addicts very well. And you said that your husband was a very high level functioning person. And it wasn't, you didn't really realize it. You didn't even see it. Like what were some of the signs that let you know that there was some, there was more going on than just to drink out to dinner? Oh man. I mean, it's uh, like I said, I was so classic, just making excuses for him all the time, not necessarily to him, but in my head. Oh, well, my gosh, he's working so hard. Of course he's falling asleep. Christmas dinner when he literally fell asleep in his mashed potatoes. Wow. That's what I was saying. And I said it to his mom because I, I felt bad for her that she would be seeing something that would be hurtful for her, you know, sad. Oh, this is how hard he works that he is asleep in his mashed potatoes. And then 
it seemed like every time we went on vacation, so now, you know, we've got three kids under five years old, we're planning a vacation, might've been getting on a plane to go across country to see family. And, you know, the, the night before it gets pretty busy. And so normally you're both jumping into this, pulling your own weight and he was not functioning. And I would realize so late in the evening, oh my gosh, you can't, you can't carry on a sentence, you know? And so then I'd wait for the next day to talk to him and say, this is a problem. And when the next day came and he again was not able to have a conversation, that's when I realized, oh, this is really big. And we've danced around this issue. And, you know, we've got this hour to talk. There's a whole lot of time and a whole lot of Mm. uh, stages that go into this, you know, entering AA, the family accepting this problem and and supporting, trying to get back to good health, you know, rehab, trying again, you know, all these stages falling, you know, just there, there were all these little events that you deal with. And then when nothing is working, And again, there are people at risk. In some cases, it's just not salvageable. Well, Catherine, it sounds like you really, really did more than most people stood by his side for a long time through some really difficult things and endured, you know, a lot of second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, I don't know how many chances, but I hope the word should is no longer in your life. No, no, not at all. (laughs) Good girl. And, you know, there was, there was another part of that when you take that first step. And again, you know, there's a lot of people helping you, but you're taking those steps by yourself. And that first reaction you get when you say, okay, life is changing. And I am telling you all (laughs) that this is not okay. And that people are being hurt and it's not going to go on like this. And I'm setting some boundaries and I'm making that very clear to everybody. When you've been just agreeable, go along to get along, that type of thing, that change in you is not met well by no others <laughs> who have been benefiting from that. And so another person who was instrumental in, you know, my ability to take these steps in a healthy place gave me the expression bitch, which I don't always like to use that word, but she said to me, no, it stands for babe in total control of herself. Woo, I love that. And so when you start acting like one, that may be the word people use to describe you because they're not used to that. And so they're going to push back and they're going to make it uncomfortable for you to be in control of yourself. And it was funny because that was the word I'd say to myself, "Oh, oh my gosh, I sound like such a bitch. And then I'd realize, no, that's good. I'm getting there. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, yeah, they, they should have a problem with that because I'm done, you know, laying down, taking that anymore. <laughs> Embrace it, girl. <laughs> yeah. And it, it would, it was liberating. It really, it really was that, uh, that was important. Karen, I call that being, choosing courage over comfort. We, yeah. we call that being brave. Like that's why you're even on this podcast, Catherine. <laughs> mm-hmm. See, you get right. it now? Yep. <laughs> you <laughs> bitch. <laughs> you bitch, you get that now? <laughs> yes. It sounded like, and you touched on this briefly, that you told your family. I'm, I'm imagining your family was supportive. How about his family? Were they supportive? Mm. And the chill, the kids. My, I was so lucky. Uh, my family trusted me. And so I don't want to say there weren't questions, but there was not a challenge. And maybe it was because I was, a, I was already at a point when um, I had taken the first steps and made decisions and, um, uh, so they, and this has been the case in my family and I'm 
blessed beyond belief because I know a lot of families aren't like this, but they accepted my decision. They knew I hadn't been frivolous about it, that there had been, you know, that my first concern would always be my, my kids, my family. And if, and they could tell if you are doing this because of those reasons, then, you know, how are we to doubt this? They had questions, they had concerns, but there was no doubt. And for my kids, that was rough. Mm, (laughs) Um, That was, it was hard telling them because again, even for them, I painted a really good picture and people always said, oh no, no, they knew. But if you ask them to this day, they'll say, no, didn't see it coming. Wow. Just didn't. And so it, it was a responsibility to help them with that adjustment because it just hit them in the face. And they were in middle school and elementary school then. So not a great age, but you know, there isn't really one when your folks tell you that this is happening. Yeah. So, you know, that was the whole other thing to deal with was their fears and something. Another person coined the phrase with me, the horrible imaginaries, mm-hmm. you know, your, your mind just wanders like, Oh my gosh, what's going to happen? What's this going to look like? What if this happens? What if that happens? And you just don't know. And so you find a whole bunch of things you can worry about. And most of them you don't see coming the things that (laughs) really are more of a problem or it's just, you know, something you're going to have to deal with when the time comes. And usually I found that by the time the next thing came, I was a whole lot stronger from the things I've been dealing with before. Yeah. And so you build up this confidence. What do you think your kids think now? Uh, They fully understand the decision and they, I think they are, I know they're grateful, but another perspective someone gave me in all of this is oftentimes in an intact home where the parents are, you know, married and everyone's in the the home together, there is the tendency to present a united front. This isn't all homes, but this is many. So mom and dad come forward with a, a, a matching perspective on life and where life's going to go and values. And and when parents divide and divorce, children now have the opportunity to see how different choices lead to different outcomes. And so it was just one little thing. Somebody said, this won't be bad for your kids to see. And some kids don't get that opportunity to see. They only see one way to do things. And so this did definitely give them a chance to compare. And certainly, you know, not every decision I made was right or led to a fantastic outcome. And, you know, certainly not on his side either. But there there was some, you know, certainly talking points and conversations and teachable moments. And, and other times, you know, you don't even have to talk about what's to be learned from a situation that's so obvious. Um, but that that is something even today, you know, they're in their, well, now they're moving into their late twenties. Um, they're, they see that and they recall things like that in moments. And it's pretty interesting how much they absorb. How was it that you mentioned uh, the safety factor of your kids, which is why you decided, okay, that's it. During your divorce, I would imagine, well, sorry. Well, yeah. During the divorce and after there had to have been custody where you shared custody and you had to trust that, um, you know, they were going to be with their dad for the weekend. How, how did that go for you? And I'm sure it was different. It may have been different every time. And, you know, I don't know if you want to talk about, well, I'll answer it. It did not go well. Okay. There you go. It didn't go well. Do you want to expand upon that? Uh, it did not go well for me. It was heart-wrenching to have to trust when there was someone you knew had an enormous challenge to keep himself together for a whole weekend uh, and care for the three most important people in your life. How My does kids. a mama bear deal with that? It I would was, never have even thought of that, Kara. Um, 
So there are there are two sides to this. The first is it was inconceivable to me that I had to had to, you know, legally let them go into a place where even if it were not by the letter of the law, I knew they were in harm's way, even if it was harming their hearts. That was not okay for me. You wouldn't let your kids go to a, a, a friend's home if you thought they weren't going to be treated nicely by those parents. So why did I have to let these children go somewhere where I didn't think it was healthy for them? Mm-hmm. You know, that was, some people may not see it as an unhealthy place, but so, th- so that's a matter of perspective, I guess. Uh, so that ripped me apart and I was angry for sure about that. And most times I would end up having to go pick them up and retrieve them from that home because they didn't want to be there or they knew it wasn't safe or, you know, they, they were alone. There were all these reasons. But then the other aspect is when you're going through this, again, you're going through it alone. In the end, it's you and you alone and it's exhausting and you need that break. Mm -hmm whether it's every other weekend or Thursday nights or whatever it may be, you have to catch your breath. You have to take care of yourself. And so when you can't have that, because you're always on call, that that's draining. Yeah, I can imagine. But, you know, the first priority is the kids. So you don't, you don't think about that other aspect until, you know, you wake up and you realize I am on fumes, no reserves. Were you able to set some boundaries though during the separation to, or, you know, again, separation through the divorce and after with, with the custody? Probably it was easier to do so. Well, I mean, honestly, in the beginning, things like don't call after a certain time <laughs> or don't call. <laughs> Wait, who are you saying not to, to him? Don't oh to him. Okay. No, no, no. It's like, don't call me mm-hmm. because I'm just getting, it's, you know, it's not anything that's urgent about the kids. It's not anything that's about planning for our kids as co-parents. Just don't call. And that would probably be, it, it's very difficult to draw boundaries when you are both the parents of, you know, shared kids, because you, you know, he's entitled to hear certain things. He's, you're, you're supposed to be having discussions. But when those discussions become unproductive or hostile or turned on them, that's when the boundaries get difficult. And I ended up having to more set them within myself. Like, I'm not going to let this get to me. I have to, I have to at least make this call, do the right thing, but I know there's going to be backlash or I know there's going to be twisting or I know whatever. And I'm just going to set my own boundary and say, that's going to stay outside of me. I'm not going to let that corrode. I'm sure that takes a lot of practice. (laughs) I had so much though. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I know. You had a lot of practice, but it just... (laughs) You get better and better at it. (laughs) So Catherine, I mean, it sounds to me like, you know, and this is the first time I'm hearing your story, but it sounds to me like you were the, the, you know, and I hate to use stereotypes, but you were the the brave woman who probably gave up a lot in her life to be the person who stayed at home to take care of the kids, to take care of the household. You didn't have a career when you, uh, you know, when you started to go on this journey. How scary is that to not have a career to fall back on or something, you know, to to rely on yourself? You always relied on someone else to kind of bring in the bacon, I'm going to say. So Mm -hmm. here you are, you know, you're remarried, you have a kick-ass career. Um, Like, I mean, you're like, how does that happen? How did you go from, you know, blaming yourself for someone else's toxicity and addiction, uh, trying to figure out how to get your children and yourself to a healthier place, and then having to support yourself while you were going through all this, tell, tell us, tell us that part, because I think most people in your situation would think they could never do what you've done. They could never get out of a toxic relationship. They could never do that to their children. They could never support themselves. They could never find love again. 
And here you are to disprove all that. I can't wait to hear what you say. <laughs> I guess one of the things I kept giving myself a self check. And it, I remember thinking, am I okay with this if I end up being alone for the rest of my life? Or what if my kids hold me responsible for this? Am I going to be okay if like the worst case scenario happens? Will I be better off and okay? And do I think my kids will be better off? And unless that answer was yes, then, you know, something had to change. And so when you are that, when you have that much conviction in your actions, it makes the, the survival, what's the word I'm looking for? It makes ha- having to decide how to rebuild your life a little less scary because the alternative is more scary. Yeah, that makes sense. So I, again, I, I talk about just all these people who came into my life at exactly the right time. And I had a dear friend who I'd known forever. And she said to me the week before my divorce was final, she said, Hey, my sister's hiring. It's really just pocket change, but it would get you kind of back in the workforce. Do you want to do it? And I said, yes. And the only reason I said yes was I wanted my kids to see me do that. And to there was a job there. There was a start. I'm taking it and I'll make it whatever it needs to be. And it wasn't enough in the beginning, but it was something. So I took that and it was part-time. And, you know, it's just one of those things where you pour yourself into it because by golly, it's all I've got. So I'm going to make this did I just say by golly? You totally <laughs> did. <laughs> but I think you said by golly, geez. <laughs> I might have. Oh, by golly. And by golly, gosh darn it, people like me. <laughs> it, there's just this drive in you to, you know, get to the next step. And, you know, I had a really cool boss and... I worked really hard and I did a good job. And so it led to something else and then it led to something else. And then, you know, it got to the point where I was finding better jobs that were still part-time and then I got to move to full-time and then I got to a much better job and it just starts building. And, you know, it doesn't work that way for everyone, but I, I do believe it sounds so difficult when you're in it, but you just have to believe that's really the first thing you have to do is just believe it's going to work out and you're going to have to make it work out though, you know, and you're going to, and, and it may not be what you picture in the end, but kind of accept what, what's coming at you and make something of it. And it's not easy. And it's, there, there are just too many twists and turns and, you know, you, you get really far down the road and then, oof, you know, I'm not as far as I thought I was going to be, but I remember a friend said to me, how is it that, you know, your, your marriage of 17 years is falling apart. You're dealing with substance abuse in your home. You've got three kids that you're pretty much raising by yourself. You're downsizing from this beautiful home you were in to a really small and cramped place. And you have a smile on your face. And I think I really felt I felt like things were moving in a good direction and that I knew how to get us there. Even if I didn't have the path drawn out, I knew in the moment I was going to know what decisions to make for my family. And that, that was just believing and a whole lot of faith and a whole lot of prayer and being very fortunate to be surrounded by, you know, great counseling professionals, great family, great friends. It, it, I had the whole picture, but you still have to do it yourself. You still have to do it yourself. Catherine, if you could, what would you tell your 18-year-old self? What advice would you give her? I would say change your hair. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) And I would say always have, oh, this sounds so. Don't judge it. Yeah. Now I'm thinking there's like a, a hierarchy of things I would say, but one of the things would be, always be able to take care of yourself, whether that means, you know, keeping a toe in the workforce, if you're able to stay home with your children and you choose to just keep something going so that whatever may happen in your life, 
you have the ability to care for yourself and your kids if you have them. Decide and pay attention to what feels good in a relationship and make sure that you apply that to all of your relationships. One thing I would tell my kids to look, to take away from this whole and the many experiences that they've had is the things you learn about being treated badly apply to every relationship you have in your life, whether it's your family, your friends, a romance, whatever it may be, there is a certain standard you need to hold people to and deliver on your end that is the way that is acceptable for you to be treated. And some things don't feel good and you should recognize that and make sure that's a boundary you set. And so I wish I had known that sooner. I wish I had paid attention to what's healthy and what's not and what's okay and what's not. I love that. Beautifully said. What do you want your future self to be proud of? Oh gosh. I guess it's the the family I raised and the joy that I recognize and relish right now. I am so grateful for the life we have built. And when I say we, I mean my kids, my husband now, you know, obviously we remarried later in life when you just have this, this appreciation for all that is good. And when you are living it, I mean, I'm living my best life. I guess that's what I would say. I have a job that I really enjoy. I have kids that I really enjoy being with. I really, I really do. I mean, they're, I love being with them. They're and awesome. I, I have a marriage that is just respectful, caring. Um, my heart is held and cared for and seen and heard. And it is uh, a pleasure to it's an honor to be married in this, in this marriage, to be a partner in this marriage. It really mm, is. It is awesome. I love your husband too. I think I love <laughs> the, I love the two of you together. It's, it's a great thing. And I think we're good for our families too. Oh, great. What advice, Catherine, do you have for the person who, you know, you're telling their story and their stuff? What advice do you have for them? There is always a way. There is there's always a way, whether it's to make the current situation better or tolerable. I hate to settle for tolerable, but to make it better or to just completely shift. And I, I, I think you need to be careful about saying, you know, like I, I worry about conversations like this that sound like, you know, just leave. No, <laughs> that's not at all what I'm saying. But you have to make the decision that's right for you, that's right for your family. And that very well may be to just find a way to enrich where you are already. And for me, it was to go to a place that I could, that I could build a better place, a better life and knowing I could do it. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, it did. Thank, thank you. Thank you for that. What was, uh, Catherine, what was your favorite book as a child? Oh my gosh. Uh, it was probably, <laughs> I don't know how far back we're going to go, but I think when I was really little, it was the Maurice Sendak book. Um, like where the wild things are. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. One was Johnny, um, chicken soup with rice. Oh, love that one too. Yeah. Good one. <laughs> That's Carol King. Yeah. The song she she wrote the lyrics to his book or the um the score to his books. Yep. Wow. Oh my God, that was great. We used to play that in the house. Yes. And dance and sing to it. That was fantastic. Thank you for the memory. Oh yeah, that brought me back too. Yeah. Any other snippets that you want people to know about you, or just that you want to, you know? Yeah. You know what? I guess I would also advise. I journaled. I had never been a journaler. And I thought it was kind of a waste of time. And I think you have to practice that. And so every night I journaled. <laughs> this is wow. This is two years of stuff. Wow. Every night I journaled. And sometimes it was to blow off steam where it wasn't going to bother anyone else. 
And other times it was to work through something. And I found a lot of times if I'd write it down, it became pretty obvious. Oh, this is just not worth worrying about. Now that I write all this down, I can let go of this before I go to bed. You know, this is just easy. This is not a big deal. Or I would figure out a way to address it. But the coolest part is when it's truly something you're going through is you look back and you realize, wow, I have come so far. And look at all that that I went through. And that's, you know, if you're going to ask, what will I be most proud of? I guess it's progress, you know, and moving forward. And yeah, so that I would say is a really helpful tool. And I also noticed I was going through it today. And at one point I said, all right, this is just craziness. Why am I doing this? What do I want life to look like when I get through this so that I can keep my eye on the prize? And I wrote down, these are the things I want to have. A happy, well, happy, well-adjusted kids, a better prayer life, rejuvenated friendships, a home I can afford and sustain, someone to care for my heart and killer arms. <laughs> oh, I That's love I Priorities, priorities. I love it. All right, Catherine, show us your guns. <laughs> no, they're not guns. Now, but, <laughs> I mean, they helped me slug my way through a few things. I love it. I love it. It sounds like you've slugged your way through a lot. And that is amazing. And I, and I love what you just said about writing in your journal. One of the things you said was that you, sometimes you'd write something down and you'd be like, oh, I do not need to worry about this. This is not important. I love that because you used to start, I will start, I can't say that you do this, but I start playing things over and over in my head and the worry and stuff. But if you put it down on paper, there sounds like there's a chance you might go, oh, who cares? Or maybe I'll just let it sit there. At least get it out of your head. Great advice. Absolutely what it does. Yeah. But then you also capture the important things and the lessons and the reminders that, because I would do that, I would star that, like, don't ever forget this, you know? And it, I, it was something I could come back to. I, I, there was something I saw in there today about the, the sermon at church one Sunday in September of 2008. And the, the priest was talking about having your cross to bear. And, you know, there's a whole religious aspect to that, but he also (laughs) applied this really practical vision to it. And he said, this was my paraphrasing, suffering can be like buying new shoes. The blisters are unbelievable and unbearable at first. But after you take care of them and break in the shoes, the pain goes away just a little bit. And I thought, oh my gosh, that goes back to that, you know, babe in total control of herself thing. Like this doesn't feel good right now. I don't want anything like this. And it (laughs) irritates me. And I want to take these off because they don't, it just doesn't feel good. But then, oh, son of a gun, I'm getting a little bit of a callus there. And this really doesn't hurt anymore. And I can, I can do this. And these shoes look pretty good on me. (laughs) So I thought that was a really interesting image and things like that help you see your actions in a more purposeful way, I think. Right. I agree. Thank you. Catherine, I have like so enjoyed like learning about you and your badass bravery and the courage that you chose over really you could have stayed in a very kind of comfortable situation, although it was toxic and not good for your family. You're super brave for moving on. So one thing you said that really, I think is such a great way to look at life, the way you said that, hey, I would think of the worst case scenario and whatever that worst case scenario was, as long as I would be okay with that worst case scenario, I knew I was doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. So even if my kids were upset with me with what I did, that would be okay because I was making the right decision for them and for me. Like, I just love that. That's going to be a little litmus test, I think, in my life when I have a really difficult decision to make. Like, okay, what's the worst case scenario? And if that happens, will I be okay if I make this decision? Thank you for sharing that with me. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Thanks for letting me share. 
Thank you for joining us today, Catherine. This was great. And we really appreciate your bravery in, in what you shared. I mean, it's very personal. There, I'm sure there's a, there a lot of emotion attached to it. Um, I'm glad you had that journal to reference. <laughs> and by the way, for those, everybody who is listening, they're not seeing, but she held up a book that was pretty substantial. And I think every page was uh, used. <laughs> Front and back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. And I have one last question for you, Catherine. All right. What is your best craft cocktail? <laughs> well, I'm hoping that it is infusing itself right now in my fridge. I've got some peaches sitting in some bourbon right now for a cocktail I'm going to make this weekend. But I would have to say I'm partial to bourbon. So my bourbon smash is always well received and creates for a very robust party. Ooh. All right. And I have no idea what the smash means, but it sounds very interesting. <laughs> you'll, have, you'll have to come and enjoy it with me. All right. Oh, awesome. Thank, Thank you, Catherine. Catherine. Thank you so much. We hope this podcast has inspired and empowered you to overcome what might be holding you back from living your best life. If you love this podcast, please share it with a woman you know who needs a little empowerment. Now go out in the world and be bold, be brave, be you. Perfectly imperfect you. With love, Kara and Patty. I wonder what would happen if you say what you want to say. Hold on a second. Take two. <laughs> Take two. <laughs> that, was, that was fast. Okay.